Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to uh, study the word, concentrate this evening, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace and your goodness to us that you have given us so many wonderful and fantastic blessings. We have such a tremendous heritage of of freedom and Bible teaching and truth in this nation. We just pray that you would continue to protect this nation and provide for this nation. You'd continue to uh, watch over the leaders at every level, from the uh, national level down to the local level, and we pray that you would just uh, make your truth evident, challenge them with the truth. And, Father, we pray that there would be a just tremendous evidence of, of the truth of your word in this nation. Father, we pray that there would be a, a good restoration of spiritual interest and positive volition. And, Father, as we study tonight, we pray that we would be challenged, encouraged by your word because we know that whatever happens, whatever we face, whatever is going on around us, it's all under your control And we know that our responsibility is to glorify you in everything that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I want to do three things tonight. First of all, today I went to a meeting hosted by the Texas Pastors Conference in Austin. And we uh, met, had a briefing, rather, from about five different leaders in state government, and that was interesting. Second thing we're going to do is, after teaching on the four types of forgiveness last week, I continue to hear rumors of questions. One of the men who was rumored to have had questions, of course, isn't here. So whenever I plan to say, okay, we're going to have some a question and answer time for clarification, the people that have the questions don't show up. So much for planning. And then we're going to proceed into finish up Hebrews 9 and go into uh, Hebrews chapter 10. So that's what we'll start with. Now, let's start. We'll start off with this Texas Pastors Conference. Now, just to brief you a little bit, I think there's some pamphlets, brochures out there in the foyer from when Dave Welch uh, gave a a little orientation to that, a little commercial for his work and what he's doing when he was here at the. at the Chafer Conference, 
He has a background working in various different organizations. He's a lawyer by profession or by background, by education, training, and he's been involved in a number of uh, Christian-based organizations who are involved in lobbying at different levels. And when he moved to Houston, he's from, as he puts it, the People's Republic of Washington State. And when he came down to Texas, I don't know when it was, several years ago now, six or seven years ago, part of what he wanted to do was to work with pastors, to organize pastors, conservative, Bible-believing pastors. The doctrinal statement for the organization holds to inerrant, infallible scripture, uh, substitutionary atonement of Christ, several other points. It's a, it's a solid, it's not an in-depth doctrinal statement, but it guarantees that those who are involved are conservative in their theology, and it also involves a number of men in different ethnic groups. There's a number of Hispanic pastors were there, several uh, black pastors were there uh, today, and have been at different meetings. And they've done some good things that I, I have been uh, pleased with observing over the last couple of years. They were uh, vocal immediately, and the idea is it's not to go out and march in the streets or that kind of thing, but when government leaders are engaged in certain policies or directions that they need to hear from the conservative Christian community about to set up a meeting and go in with four or five pastors, sit down with the mayor or city council or school boarders and say, okay, this is what our concerns are, and to uh, discuss those things make them aware of our side because you hear about when they go to the clergy and you hear from the clergy and from Christian leaders in the newspaper, who are they? Well, they're not in our camp. They're not conservative, Bible-believing uh, pastors. So that's that's the approach, and he organized what's called the Houston Area Pastors Conference and then uh, Texas Pastors Conference, and they've got two or three chapters around the country. And I've been impressed with their uh, approach and their desire to uh, educate pastors as to what is going on, at, especially at legislative and policy levels, so that we can properly address these things from a biblical perspective and uh, inform congregate. There's a lot of things that go on in at the uh, city, state, and national level that we don't normally hear about. They're not reported by the news media until they happen. And so it's important to be involved. We live in a nation where our government is based on the people, for the people, of the people, by the people. It is grounded on citizen involvement, and citizen involvement is not uh, inordinate activism. There's a difference, and as citizens, we should be involved uh, at every level to whatever degree we can, because if we don't, if we just sit back and get so concerned about our own lives and enjoying the benefits and the blessings and the prosperity that we have, and we don't pay attention to maintaining the mechanics of the engine, then it's very easy to wake up one day and all of a sudden things are falling apart. If you have a good car and you uh, enjoy driving it and enjoy the benefits of it, but you don't get up every morning. I don't get up every morning, go out there and exam- before I go anywhere and test the belts and check the hoses and all those little things, and then one day all of a sudden four or five things go wrong and you're in trouble. 
and we're in that position in this nation. And so we, it, when that happens, when trouble occurs, all of a sudden you have to stop paying attention to enjoying the benefits of the machine, and you've got to fix things. And, be invo- and that calls for attention and involvement and those kinds of things. So anyway, we went to this meeting today, and it uh, was set up to have uh, different uh, officials come in and give us a briefing on uh, and just to become aware of who, who the, we are and have developed that communication. And so Governor Perry came in and Lieutenant Governor uh, David Dewhurst and um, Justice uh, Adele Wainwright, who is a Supreme Court justice in uh, in the state, and uh, Jerry Patterson, who's a land commissioner. I found that interesting because I didn't really know what the Texas land commissioner did, and that's a pretty interesting office. And so they came in and and uh, communicated to it with us, and and it was it was good. I, as I reflected upon it, I thought this is the best bunch of upper level leaders we've had in state government in, in a very long if, in my lifetime. Every one of these men is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who didn't really give a uh, a testimony of their salvation was Governor Perry. It was clear from different things that he said that he understood Scripture. He quoted some Scripture from memory as he was talking. Uh, he had, you know, obviously notes and different things, but he wasn't as strong as as the others. But, gosh, he's so much stronger than any number of governors I can think of in the past 30 or 40 years. So I was very pleased at that. Of course, David Dewhurst was was extremely solid. And he comes out of a very strong church. Many of you, some of you knew him at Baraka. Um, and then um, this uh, young uh, black guy, Dell, I think his first name was Dell uh, Wainwright, who is 47 years old and a Supreme Court justice. And he was extremely impressive, as was the Attorney General, who is Greg Abbott, and he was. Uh, I mean, those two men I would vote for for anything. They, Dale Wainwright, that's his name. Those two were ex- incredibly impressive with their, in terms of their own ability to communicate their, uh, their, their spiritual life, their convictions, and they, they were very solid. Uh, Rick Perry talked about uh, the importance of his own personal spiritual life, and that, um, of course, he and uh, some of you will appreciate this information. He and Jerry Patterson, of course, were Aggies, so that meant that they had a special place in the hearts of many there. But he was, the thrust of what he said was the importance that the citizens in Texas need to communicate with their representatives and with the governor and with the lieutenant governor. We forget that when things are going well, we're not, we usually don't pay attention to what they're doing. The only time we pay attention to what the government's doing is when we don't agree with what the government is doing, and then they hear from us. But they're fighting some really tough and really important battles, and it's important for us to pray for them. They all emphasize that again and again, how important it was that we pray for them 
on a daily basis that they are in the heat of the battle and get a tremendous amount of criticism and also to uh, communicate with them and it good just to, even if it's just to send them a note of encouragement or thank them for something that you notice is uh, is good for them so uh, he emphasized that he talked about a number of pieces of legislation policies uh, that had uh, that they've uh, been able to get through in the last ten, 10 years or so that he's been governor. That was good. Uh, David Dewhurst came in. He went through a number of things as well. He talked about the fact that they were paying attention to the budget, that there are a lot of Texans who are hurting financially, and that the budget increase this year is only 2% over last year. Of course, I'd like to see it go to you know minus 5%, but we can't get everything that they're tightening their belt in a number of different areas. They're trying to change some things positively with relation to to, uh, uh, to the to health care system and trying to be proactive in addressing those issues before we sort of lose the whole battle with, with things that are happening at the, at the federal level. And, of course, they, he talked about the Defense of Marriage Act, which uh, was passed, and the way it was written in Texas means that we should not be running into any of these problems that these other states are running into. And they have had one case where one couple who got, quote, married, unquote, up in Massachusetts, uh, a couple of men tried to get a file for a divorce in Dallas. And when uh, they were alerted to that, they immediately shut it down because you can't file for a divorce if you're not married. And in Texas, they don't recognize that. And they all these men were unified in their understanding that to even call it a civil union is basically to give it away. I mean, no matter what you call a, what's the saying, a rose by any other name, whether you call it a civil union or a marriage, if, if it's going to have all the same benefits, it's the same thing. So don't be um, confused or uh, distracted by change in terminology. And on that note, I heard today that the legislature in Connecticut passed uh, law yesterday because they have uh, the Supreme Court in the state of Connecticut uh, affirmed same-sex marriage. Now they have to change their curriculum in in the schools and change all the textbooks because now they can't use that terribly outdated uh, right-wing extremist terminology like bride and groom because that's just too sexist. And, and if you have, if you don't, what do you do? Have two grooms? Or? So uh, they're all hoping that that will, uh, that will stand. They um, passed a number of other pieces of legislation in the uh, last few years. They had mandated a moment of silence, which has been held up in federal courts. That a minute, it has to be one minute of silence so that those who want to pray can pray, and if you want to contemplate your feet, then you can do that, whatever you want to do. And that has passed and been challenged in the courts and has been upheld uh, so far. He also mentioned that they've passed some, uh, the toughest uh, Jessica law in the nation and a number of other uh, other things. He gave, also gave a very clear um, uh, statement of his of his uh, Christian convictions, and he also ended with a statement that I thought was good. He said, if you read history, the Christians who did the most for the world were precisely those who thought the most about the next. 
and the involvement of Christians and pastors down through uh, the history of this nation in how they impacted uh, the government. Then uh, Attorney General Greg Abbott spoke, and he, he emphasized right off the bat that we must not abandon the under God statement in the in the National Pledge, and in the last couple of years, they added under God to the State Pledge. How many of you all know the State Pledge of Allegiance to the Texas flag? About very good. Seven or eight of you do. That's very good. And under God was just added, so and that was challenged in the courts, of course, and was upheld. He also went through uh, aspects of what uh, we do in Texas. He... Uh, used an analogy that he borrowed from listening to uh, Tony Evans, who is a Dallas seminary. Used to, I think he's on the board now. He used to be, uh, he was the first uh, African-American to get a Master's of Theology and, PH, and THD from Dallas Seminary. He was one of my uh, uh, homiletics professors. Pastors of a large church in the Dallas area, and so he borrowed an illustration from him that he used to uh, point out that uh, if you have a crack in the wall in your sheetrock and you plaster it over, tape embed it, paint it over, and it looks good, a couple of years later, your crack comes back. And doesn't matter how much you replace the sheetrock and do things to the wall, the problem is the foundation, and the problem is in our nation, the foundation has eroded terribly. And that is where we have what we have to do. And that's the business of pastors and the church and Christians. And they all emphasize that the bottom line is if we're going to have an impact, it starts with the gospel. It starts with evangelism. It starts with changing people, people's hearts. That's the only solution ultimately. And he um, uh, mentioned a number of things that he has been involved in, including defending the constitutionality of a monument to the Ten Commandments that stands on the uh, Austin on the grounds of the state capitol there in Austin, and that went all the way up to the Supreme Court building. And he told something that I did not know. He said when he was arguing it at the Supreme Court, obviously we all know there are a number of, of carvings and friezes and paintings around the Supreme Court building that of, of the Ten Commandments. So you're inside arguing that we, it's not a violation of the U.S. Constitution to have a depiction of the Ten Commandments. And the room, in, the courtroom in which they entered had a depiction of the Ten Commandments on the door going in, and, a, and at the top wall in the courtroom there's a frieze of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. So the irony of this, it just, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. But he noted that though they won that, they won it by a slim vote of five to four. And the same day, the court also decided by a five to four vote to strike down as unconstitutional uh, a monument displaying religious symbols in Kentucky. So there is a huge battle that goes on and continues, uh, continues to go on. And then we had... Um, then Dale Wainwright spoke. He was very good. He's 47 years old. He grew up. His father was a pastor. His mother was an evangelist. His father worked full-time for DuPont, and his mother was a high school English teacher. He practiced law for 12 years, and then uh, Governor George Bush at the time 
uh, appointed him to a, he's from Houston, appointed him to a judgeship here in the Houston area. And then a couple of years later, uh, Rick Perry appointed him to the Texas State Supreme Court, a position to which he was just uh, reelected. And th- up to that point, uh, or in 2002 when he was first elected, no African-American had ever been elected to the Texas State Supreme Court. So that, and, every, and a lot of people told him it would never happen, and it did. And this guy is a strict constructionist. He is an originalist when it comes to the interpretation of the Constitution. And he, um, I mean, he, he was just as clear as he could be on, on any number of issues, including the way he gave his testimony of how he was saved and what he, the trusting in Jesus Christ, death on the cross for his salvation. And he, when he goes to Washington, D.C., he enjoys going into Judge Anthony Scalia's private chambers for lunch when he goes up there. They're good friends. They're graduates of the same law school. So that's, uh, that was good. Then Jerry Patterson, who's a Texas land commissioner, uh, spoke. He is a fifth generation, uh, full-time military service and he is a, Retired Marine Corps officer, and his son is a full-time, I mean, is an active-duty Marine officer serving for career officer. And he's also, Jerry Patterson is also a graduate of Texas A&M. So now he is serving as a land commissioner, and he went over what they do, and I need to go to their website. That was interesting. They had a lot of, he had some interesting stories, funny stories about Texas history and talked about uh, Papio Daniel and Mon Paul Ferguson and, I, without going through everything, one time the, the, he said, everybody fights the same. Every generation seems to fight the same battles. There's nothing new. Little details change. And back in the, in the 40s when Ma Ferguson was uh, governor of Texas, and they called her Ma because her initials were M.A. and her husband's, I forget what their, you remember what Paul Ferguson's name was? His initials were P.A., so they called him Ma and Paul Ferguson. And he got, in, he got, um, um, uh, impeached, and so he couldn't serve again. So she ran on the on the slogan that you get Ma and Paul Ferguson, you get two governors for the price of one. And so there was a problem with what are you going to do with all these uh, Hispanic kids that are come up from Mexico and can't speak English, and how are you going to educate them? Just perennial problem. And she said, Well, you know, if English was good enough for Jesus Christ; it's good enough for us. <laughs> We have these colorful people in Texas history that, and we've elected a number of governors that just aren't real educated. So that was the thrust of it. There were three questions that were asked. The first question that was asked had to do with um, hate crimes legislation. It was asked of of uh, Greg Abbott, and the question was, what should we do? in the event that the federal government passes this hate crimes legislation that will make it a, a felony, an imprisoned offense, to say anything negative about a homosexual behavior or homosexual marriage or to uh, critique that. He said as long as it's on his watch, no pastor in Texas will ever be uh, charged with anything they say from the pulpit. So he's very solid. But what's going to happen after the next election? And I understand 
It wasn't said today, but I understand that he's thinking about running for the U.S. Senate office when Kay Bailey Hutchinson steps down, and he would be good, but who's going to replace him? Well, somebody asked Dale Wainwright that, and he's he's thinking about it. So who knows what will happen or who will get elected. But it could change in a heartbeat, as we all know. Certain people and groups get elected. It can all go out the window, and we have a... We, we have a uh, solid, conservative Texas state Supreme Court right now that has functioned remarkably well. Thirty years ago in the 70s, Texas had one of the most liberal state Supreme Courts, and we were known for that. And we were, I remember Christian just screaming about the decisions that the Texas state Supreme Court was making back in the 70s, and it's, we've gone 180 degrees in the opposite direction now but we don't know how long that will last. So the first question had to do with uh, hate crimes legislation. The second question had to do with with civil disobedience, and that was asked of Dale Wainwright. said, when is it necessary? When will it be incumbent upon Christians, and what are the right conditions for uh, exercising civil disobedience? And his answer was interesting. He said, it may surprise you to know that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a strong believer in the rule of law. But when, his views, when uh, the law is unjust, we are in a system where we can make our voices heard. But if you are going to violate the law to do that, then you have to be willing to pay the penalty and go to prison for it. And that was his answer. There are a lot of people asking that question on civil disobedience today, and I just don't think that we are to that to that point. I have heard a lot of people making comparisons with uh, Nazi Germany and what happened in Germany, and comparisons especially to the um, the Valkyrie episode, the July assassination attempt. On, on Hitler that was led by Count von Stauffenberg, who was an evangelical. There were other evangelicals who were firmly against what they were doing, and I understand that, but we're not in a position like 1944. We're in a position like, if there's an analogy there, it'd be like the early 20s, where it is still the law of this, the Constitution is still the law of the land, and we still have freedom of speech and freedom of expression, and nobody's trying to knock down anybody's doors and come in and take away anything that you have in your house. Nobody is throwing anybody in jail for uh, political, political speech that is unacceptable to the administration. And so now is the time for people to be involved in the political process through uh, all the different ways in which we can be involved in politics, writing your congressman, writing your senators, writing your representatives, governor, mayor, uh, making your, uh, your voice heard, and being involved at, uh, from the local precinct level all the way up. And that is how we are to do things. And when we don't vote and when we don't go to these meetings and we don't write letters and we don't uh, make our voices heard and things don't go the way we think they should, then we're going to have a lot of regrets in hindsight. So that is, this is the time to be involved. There's nothing wrong with taking action. 
responsible legal action that it's the way the system's built. It's not built on passivity. It's built on the involvement of the citizens. And so we need to uh, think about how we can be involved, what we can do, what parties we can financially support, what other uh, lobbying groups we can financially support in terms of what they are doing and working within the system as much as much as possible. The third question had to do, I think, with uh, what uh, was just a, more of a question to Dale Wainwright as to what his thoughts were about uh, running for attorney general if uh, Greg Abbott runs for Senate. So that was it. I, I was really pleased. I was encouraged by these men. We have great state leadership, as good or not better than it's ever been at any time in my life. And that what's happening at the federal level, well, that's a different story. Okay, let's move on to the second issue, which is questions on the four types of forgiveness. Now, just to remind you of what I was teaching last week, I've made a couple of more charts to make this, try to make this a little more clear. I started off talking about forgiveness is from the Greek word aphasis. The verb is aphiemi, and it has the range of meaning of release, liberation, forgiveness, cancellation. Forgiveness is a tough, tough concept for us to get our hands around because we don't like forgiving people who have deeply, profoundly hurt us or betrayed us. And that is a very difficult thing for people to do and to think about, especially when the, the more painful the circumstance or the situation. But forgiveness means the act of freeing or liberating or releasing someone from something, from, from captivity, and it's certainly used within the idea of economics. And I pointed this out when we looked at this verse in Colossians 1.14 and also a parallel passage in Ephesians 1.7, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. That's a payment price, always in Scripture. The blood's the payment price for sin, the forgiveness of sins. And the, the phrase forgiveness of sins is appositional to the noun redemption. And what an appositional phrase is, is a phrase that explains a noun. It is in other words. So when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the phrase apostle of Jesus Christ is in apposition to Paul. It explains who he is. But if you read a verse that says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those in the church in Rome, if you leave the appositional phrase out and you're just left with Paul uh, to those in the church in Rome, the sentence makes perfect sense. It is just an additional element put into the sentence to explain the meaning of a noun. Now, a lot of times we think that what forgiveness is is, re is not holding uh, resentment or bitterness or anger against somebody. We think of forgiveness in a personal or psychological sense, and there are various meanings to the word Redemption, uh, forgiveness rather. And so I set it up this way. On the left you have the word redemption, and redemption always has the idea of paying a price or purchasing something. At the very core meaning of this concept of redemption is payment, purchase. Payment involves, that's an economic concept. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember 
uh, back years ago when they used to give out stamps to people, you'd go to a store and you would get bonus stamps or S&H green stamps, and then when you wanted to buy something, you collected all these stamps, and if you wanted to buy something, a toaster or a blender or school bus in one case, um, I remember Camp Penile saved up bonus stamps for like three years until they got an, and people donated bonus stamps, and then they bought a school bus with it, and that was the first Camp Penile school bus. So. You can, you can you would go to a redemption center to buy that. It's that idea of purchase. Now you have on the right under forgiveness. I have four different meanings I took out of different dictionaries: the Oxford, uh, the Concise Oxford English Dictionary, the Webster's Eleventh Edition Collegiate Dictionary, a couple of uh, Collins English Dictionary that I looked at, and there are four different definitions that can be given for forgiveness. The first is to give up resentment or bitterness. That's the, the, when when you look at a dictionary, the first, when they rank the meanings one, two, three, and four, it's from the most common usage to the least common usage. So the most common usage is this idea of giving up resentment or bitterness. That's what people think of. The second is the meaning to grant relief from a payment of a debt to grant relief from a payment of a debt. That is an economic term. The third meaning is to pardon somebody uh, from a penalty, or the last is to excuse someone. So if you have an appositional phrase, clause rather, or phrase, you have an appositional phrase, and that is explaining a noun that means to pay a price, then what you do is you look at the optional meanings for the, the word in the appositional phrase, and you pick the one that's in the same field of meaning as the head noun, as the main noun. So that would mean that you're not going to, you're only going to use the one that has to do with finances to grant relief from payment of a debt. So that becomes very clear that when Paul says uh, we have been redeemed in him, uh, redemption is the forgiveness of sin. It has to do with canceling a debt. And, of course, that's the idea we looked at in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, where it uses that phrase, especially in the King James Version, uses that phrase to uh, the, the, the certificate of debt, Against us. Now that means that we owed something. We owed a penalty. We owed a legal penalty to the justice of God. In the, in the early days of the church, there was this question that came up about, well, if there's a, if this is a ransom payment, who are they paying, who is the ransom paid to? And the, the dominant view in the early church, and I'm talking about like the third, late second century, third century, was it was the ransom to Satan view. That's how they understood the atonement, that Jesus was paying a price to Satan to free sinners from going, going to hell. And eventually it came to be understood correctly that the payment is the payment of a price to the justice, to the judicial demands of God, in the same way that we say that when a criminal is found guilty and has to go to prison, he is going to pay his debts to society. It's that idea. He has to make a payment to justice. And so that's the idea here. So when I broke down these categories of forgiveness, the first category I listed was judicial. And that is the, uh, that is the payment of the price 
to the justice of God, which means that all sin for believers and unbelievers, are the penalty is paid for, the judicial penalty is paid for by Christ on the cross. That becomes the foundation then for the doctrine of unlimited atonement. Christ paid the penalty for every sin, and that, that forgiveness in those passages is directed toward God. The second is positional. This is what applies to believers only, our position in Christ. In him we have forgiveness. The third category was experiential. We're familiar with this. This is when we confess our sins and God forgives us of our sin. And then the last is the really tough one, the personal forgiveness to one another. Forgiveness towards others uh, reflects our understanding of God's grace toward us. Now, I'm going to come back and say something about that in a minute. But before I do, I want to put one more chart up here to try to help clarify what it is that I'm trying to communicate. On the top, we have a diagram, a triangle expressing the Trinity, the triune God, and below we have mankind. Now, at the cross, using the parallel of what we understood from what happened on the Day of Atonement, these doctrines, these aspects of Christ's work on the cross are directed toward God. Propitiation, that means that God's justice and his righteousness are satisfied. Reconciliation, Second uh, Corinthians 5 um, 19, that, that God, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Another verse used for unlimited atonement. But it is God who is being reconciled. I mean, we are the ones who are being reconciled to God. So reconciliation is Godward. Atonement. Uh, that, that is God's, uh, the cleanse, the, the atonement is directed toward God and forgiveness, that first class, classification of forgiveness that is directed toward God. We could say redemption there is, is in another sense directed toward God in this area. That's what I meant. I put in atonement, but uh, I, that should be redemption. Just, just change that. I'll edit that out. That, that third one should be redemption. That's what I was thinking of. Redemption is that payment of a price. It's directed toward the justice of God. And it is those elements that are pictured in the Day of Atonement. The payment of the price is when the animal is offered and sacrificed. The propitiation occurred when the blood was put on the mercy seat and the cherubim representing the justice, the holiness, the righteousness of God looking down upon the blood that has been put on it. It's a picture of satisfaction, acceptance. So that's redemption and that is, uh, that's redemption and propitiation. Reconciliation is now the nation is is reconciled toward God so that the nation can go on for another year, and then they are forgiven. That's pictured with the scapegoat, that one goat was killed, the other goat is taken way out into the desert and turned loose, never to return. It is that complete obliteration of the sin problem for the nation. That doesn't mean everybody's everybody is can just come waltzing back into the tabernacle whenever they wanted to, right? 
just because the nation, God's propitiated, the nation's reconciled, uh, redeemed, uh, forgiven, that doesn't mean that just any, the priest can just walk in any time he wants to. He still had to go through the, the cleansing of the labor of the priest. When he's uh, initially ordained, he had to be washed from head to toe. So all of those things still took place. So that pictures uh, the first kind of forgiveness. And then when a person believes in Jesus, then Christ's righteousness is imputed to him. He's declared to be justified. He is regenerated, and he receives forgiveness too, which is our positional forgiveness in Christ, and initially forgiveness three. But then when you go out of fellowship, you have to confess your sins to get back in fellowship. So that's directed towards, uh, towards mankind. Any questions? Anybody lost? Anybody confused? I mean, this is different. I've explained this to several pastors several times, and they keep coming back, and they love it. It's, it's tied up a lot of loose ends in their thinking, but it is trying to get control of this is not always that easy. Now, I want to add one other element on anybody have any questions? Don't be shy. People who, you know, if you just say, you know, I'm just not clear on it yet, that's fine. Um, in John 13, we've gone through John 13 showing that the, the foot washing was designed to picture ongoing for confession and forgiveness of sin in a believer's life. You don't have to have, as, as Jesus told Peter, you don't have to get, once you're washed, you don't need to be washed from head to foot again. You just need to have your feet washed. It's a picture of confession. But remember I pointed out in John 13, at the beginning, Jesus said, having loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. Now, the next time we hear the mention of love is when we come to the end of the chapter in John 13, 30, uh, 34 and 35. And Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, and by this all men will know you are my disciples. Now, I want you to think about this. You've got a, a framing of the event of the foot washing by two state, statements about love. Now, a lot of people will come, you'll hear a lot of sermons, you go to Baptist churches or Methodist churches or in, even, even doctrinal churches, you'll hear somebody who looks at that and said, not only is this teaching about confession, but it's also teaching that Christ is a servant. And so they go to that passage to show that, that Jesus functions as a servant and, and so should we. And there's an element of truth there, but it's usually, it's left too vague. In Mark, Jesus says, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. How? To give my life as a ransom for many. So it's not just some broad category of how we can serve one another. It's not just this, this sort of ambiguous, any way in which you think you can serve another believer kind of idea. That's not what's in John 13. Jesus defined how he is serving us by giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, what's the Greek word that's translated ransom? What does it mean? That takes us right back up to this chart. It's redemption. 
that payment of a price. So Jesus is saying, I gave my life as a ransom. I'm paying the redemption price for many. What's he talking about? He's talking about forgiveness one. What is Jesus demonstrating in the upper room? He's demonstrating forgiveness three, and then he applies it to forgiveness four. See, he's he's talking about at the cross, I'm going to wipe out and cancel what everybody, the sin of the world is going to be wiped out. The payment is going to be made. Now, as believers, you're still going to sin, and there needs to be experiential forgiveness whenever you sin. But then Ephesians chapter 4.17, you need to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's how we serve one another, and that's how we love one another. In the context of John 13 is forgiving one another in that same sense of just wiping out, canceling the debt. That's why it's so hard. You can't do that on your own. You can only do that if God the Holy Spirit is transforming your soul so that you become grace-oriented, and that's what's connected there because the, the Greek word that's used there in, in Ephesians 4.17 is charizomai, which is the word meaning to be gracious, but it also was used as a synonym for forgiveness, and it's used as a synonym for economic forgiveness and forgiving a debt in uh, a couple of places in, in the Gospels. So that ties all of that, those different dimensions of forgiveness together. Now, the important thing for that in our study of Hebrews is that that whole concept undergirds the discussion that the writer of Hebrews is, is going through to these Jew, Jewish former priests who have believed uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Because he's showing that the finality and the totality of what Jesus did on the cross in contrast to the temporary effect of the sacrifices. That Jesus Christ's sacrifice is superior to the sacrifice of the blood of the uh, bulls and goats. Now, I don't know how many times I've heard, heard people talk about this when I was in seminary and I was sitting in class or, or other place where I've heard people teach on Hebrews and think, well, I understand that. Of course Jesus is superior. But he notice how we've been in this for a long time. I know that. And we went through a lot of important details. And I learned personally a tremendous amount of things that I was able to put together when we went back through all of those, all the types, all the sacrifices, all the aspects of the tabernacle, uh, just just phenomenal material there that is uh, not taught, put together in, in, in many uh, situations today at all. And the way the writer of Hebrews is writing is he just keeps weaving these different threads together and he'll, he makes points and he comes back and picks up conclusions he's made earlier, weaves them together. And so you really have to find this is, I've always heard my whole life, Hebrews is one of the toughest books to exegete and teach. And it is because you have to concentrate. You really have to pay attention and you really need a, a very, solid understanding of Old Testament theology, types, rituals, sacrifices, or you're not going to really catch 
what, what is going on here. So let's go back now in the time we have remaining to wrap up chapter 9 and start chapter 10. It should be pretty simple to understand this because we've got all this background now. Uh, verse 25, uh, the writer says, Nor was it that he would offer himself often. See, Jesus didn't have to offer himself often because it's the final sacrifice. He only has to do it once for all. The high priest had to go in on the Day of Atonement year after year after year, and the blood that he's offering isn't his own. It is the blood of the bulls and the goats. And then verse 26, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often, that is, he, otherwise Jesus, would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested, or he has appeared, that is the word there for revelation, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the word that is translated to put away sin is the Greek word athetasis, which means to remove, to abrogate, or to annul. That's another word for to cancel or to wipe out. And again, it's emphasizing that category one of forgiveness, the cancellation of the sin, the wiping out of the sin that occurred at the cross. It is a real payment that took care of things. Uh, so it's, uh, again, the emphasis here is that Jesus was able to completely put away the sin problem by sacrificing himself. That could never happen with an animal. Of course, somebody's going to say, well, why not? And that's what chapter 10 begins with. So, verse 27, he says, and inasmuch, and this is almost like a throwaway sentence as a transition between 27 and 28. But it's a verse that is packed with implication, and we go to it a lot for different things. The point of the verse is judgment. We don't go to this verse for that last part so much in our time. We go to it for the first part. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. That's what he's warning them about. All through this book, there's this forward look to the fact that we're accountable as believers at the judgment seat of Christ. Don't give up. Don't fade out in the stretch in your spiritual life now because there's going to be accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. You will be evaluated, and the issue is going to be uh, how much you have fulfilled your spiritual life in preparation, building capacity so that you can become a ruler with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. So we're in that training now. And so the focus of verse 27 is on judgment. But he said it's a point for men once to die, not twice to die. There's no recycling of reincarnation. There is just resurrection. We don't keep coming back trying to get it better. That's a problem that you have if you're, if you're trying to communicate the gospel to somebody from an Eastern, Eastern religious background, Hinduism, Buddhism, something of that nature, and you talk to them about eternal life, you have to define the term for them. Because in Eastern religions, uh, eternal life is an eternal trap. And they're trying to get out of that trap, and they're stuck in that trap with karma, and they just keep getting recycled over and over and over again. And in Eastern, if, if they're Asian or Indian, they understand that, that 
that you don't just come back as a human being. See, all these things get sanitized when they get brought into the West, and everybody thinks, well, if I don't do well, I'll come back as, you know, I'll be a, a farmer or a maid. If I do well, I'll come back and I'll be a, a rich CEO. No, if you don't do well, you come back as a toad in, 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 in Hinduism and in, in Buddhism. You come back as, as lower life forms. You're, you're an amoeba for a while or a, protozoa or whatever, but you're, you don't come back as just a human being. You come back as a, as a toad or, or, you know, a snake or a rat or something like that. Uh, but the Bible says, no, you have one life to live, that's it, and you're judged on the basis of what you actually do. Not on the, God's not going to sit up there in omniscience and say, you know, I know you died young, you died when you're 30, you could have lived another 30 years, I know what you could, would have done if you'd lived another 30 years, and so I'm going to reward you on that basis. God doesn't do that. That's what-if rewarding. God rewards it. He, he, in his omniscience, knows every factor, and he evaluates us on the basis of what we did with what we had in the lifetime we were given. And that's it. It's, it's real-time uh, rewarding. So it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Now, this is a generic statement. This is what's called a, a nomic or universal principle. And if the man is an unbeliever, then the judgment is the great white throne judgment. If you are a believer in the church age, then the judgment is the uh, judgment seat of Christ. Then in verse 28, he says, So Christ also, see, we, ha- we appear a second time. In judgment. So he says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and the term many in these contexts indicates all, and we'll look at the word there for, for bear has the idea uh, of, of carry. It comes from the, the, the Greek word is anaphero, and it has that idea of carrying or lifting something, and it was a word that was used in sacrifices as you carried a sacrifice to the altar. So this word that he uses here, he uses two forms of it, prospero in the, in the next verse and anaphero here, and this is a word that indicates, that, that brings to mind uh, putting an, a, a, a sacrifice on the altar. So he says, Christ also having been offered, and there's another word for, um, important word there for, uh, that goes all through this passage. Uh, I got, wait a minute, I got my words mixed up. This is prospero, which means to offer, um, which means to, to make the offering, not, not the bearing. That's, that's uh, a different word. But prospero is the word for, for offering, and it's used 20 times in the book of Hebrews. That ought to tell you something. For any, any word that's used 20 times in the book of Hebrews means it's important. It's used 20 times in the book of Hebrews between chapter 8 and chapter 10. All right, it's used a couple times in chapter 5, but it's used in chapter 9, it's used five times, and in chapter 10, it's used five times. So uh, whenever a word is used that frequently in that close a context, that's the idea, that's what we're talking about is this offering of a sacrifice. So Christ also having been offered to bear uh, the sins of many. And this is the idea of uh, carrying 
or the idea of lifting something. It's the same word that we have over in First uh, uh, Peter uh, chapter 2, which is anaphero. See, they're very close. The offering is prospero. The bearing or carrying the sins of many is anaphero. And it has the idea that, that they carry the sins uh, and that he, uh, he received the imputation of those sins of mankind. So the point in verse 28 is, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, that's at the judgment, for salvation with reference to sin, without reference to sin, rather. For, and that is talking using the word salvation again, not in the sense of phase one justified when we believe in Jesus, but here it's used for phase three glorification when we are face to face with the Lord in heaven. And so uh, the point is he appears a second time. This is the judgment seat of Christ without reference to sin. Sin isn't the issue at the judgment seat of Christ. We've studied this many times. The judgment seat of Christ, all of our works, our production life is stacked up, so to speak, and lit on fire, and what burns up and disappears is the wood, hay, and straw. That's what's done outside of the production of the Holy Spirit. What's left is what is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what's revealed there. The idea of dokimos, the word that's used there, uh, is the idea of exposing what's good, not exposing what's bad. God's not going to sit, Jesus is going to sit there and say, see, you sinned here and you shouldn't have. That sin was taken care of at the cross. So he appears a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now that's not saying it's not going to appear for those who didn't. It's not a partial rapture verse. It just that that's a point. It's all believers are expected to be those who uh, eagerly await him. It's like that passage over in uh, in First John that says that if you are born from, born again, born from above, you won't sin. And people get all confused about that. They say, "Wait a minute, wait a minute! I, I'm saved. I'm regenerate. I've trusted in Christ, but I sin." That verse says I don't sin. Well, the best way to understand that is this is what you're supposed to be like. It's like when you were little and you did something that embarrassed your daddy and he said, children of mine don't do that. He's not saying you're not his child. You're saying that that's not the kind of behavior that is acceptable for his child. And that's what that verse is saying, that those who are born again don't sin. It's not saying you can't sin or you should or, or, or you, you're not really saved. It's saying that that's not acceptable behavior for someone who is in the royal family of God. And so this is the same thing here. The same idea is that if you're a member of God's family, what's the behavior that's expected of you is to eagerly wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. And then we get into at the next verse. It automatically just shifts right forward into uh, verse one of uh, chapter ten. And there's no remember. Try to look at this without a chapter division. It goes right into saying, "For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form or essence of things." 
the ultimate reality, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. So it starts off talking with this explanation for the law, that is the ritual under the Mosaic law, uh, can never make perfect. That's the main idea. You might want to underline that, those phrases in your Bible. The law can never make perfect. That's the thrust. The law can never make perfect. That word for making perfect is a verb indicating maturity. The law cannot do that. And the explanation is because it's only a shadow. It's one of those words I looked at last week for typology. It's the word skia, S-K-I-A. It's only a shadow. It's only a, a pale reflection of the ultimate reality that would come at the cross. That's the good things to come. And it's not the very form of thing. You weren't saved, and sin wasn't dealt with by those sacrifices. That's what that verse is saying. So the law can never, by these same sacrifices, annually, year after year after year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, cannot bring about spiritual maturity because it can't solve the problem. And if you look back to the... Um, uh, previous chapter, it talked about this same problem. He's going back, he's picking up this thread about how this, the sacrifices from the Old Testament, the ritual, could not cleanse the conscience. And that's back in about 914. It couldn't cleanse, it was impossible for it to do that. And so now he's picking up that same thread and he's saying not only could it not cleanse the conscience, it couldn't do anything for spiritual maturity. Because the sin problem isn't actually dealt with by those sacrifices. And then verse 2 explains that. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, if they really dealt with sin, they would have only done it once. But every year they have to just keep coming back, coming back, and coming back because it doesn't really deal with the problem. And uh, otherwise, they, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, if it really truly cleansed them in reality, they would no longer have had this consciousness of sin. And that's picking up that idea of our of the, the awareness of consciousness of sin that goes back to Hebrews chapter 9. Why doesn't sin become the issue? Because for us, it's for everyone, it's paid for. Sin isn't the issue in, in explaining the gospel. You have to, people have to understand why they're spiritually dead, but the issue isn't what they've done. The issue isn't their sin. You don't have to try them out and say, see all these things that you did. See, that's why you're under condemnation. That's not the issue. The sin's paid for. It's wiped out. In the Old Testament, they still had a consciousness of sin because there's nothing that deals with it. But in the New Testament, we realize a true forgiveness. Sin isn't the issue. And so next time we'll come back and finish this up because he has to explain why this is finalized with Jesus as a superior sacrifice. So we'll get to that uh, next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this time. We've had to look at this and try to just make sure we really understand how complete and final the sacrifice of Christ is on the cross, that he paid that sin. It is dealt with. There is real forgiveness, the debt's wiped out objectively in relation to your justice, 
when we trust in Christ, we have the realization in our own experience of that forgiveness, and then that is supposed to be a part of our character as we relate to others. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've learned tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.